Good morning, everyone. My name is Evie Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Platte Woods. Um, I welcome each of you to worship here this morning and also welcome to those of you worshiping with us online today. Um, I also, I especially want to welcome back anyone who joined us for the first time on Christmas Eve and decided to come back again today. Um, we're really glad that you're here. I hope that you find this church to be a place where you feel like you belong already because you do. So we're glad, glad you've joined us. Um, I do want to take a moment just here at the beginning and celebrate some highlights from Christmas Eve. Um, Many of you joined us two weeks ago for that service, or even the week before for our Traveler's Christmas Eve service. You invited friends and family. Maybe you are the friends and family that, that came for that. Um, but over the course of all five of our Christmas Eve services, as Pastor Chung Ho already celebrated, we welcomed 1,879 people into worship together. I think that is just phenomenal. And on top of that, what you might, if you were here for it, you might be even more interested to know, we took up an offering um, in those services that will be entirely given away to support our ministry partners here in Kansas City, um, organizations that, are, that we work with to create safe and stable homes for our most vulnerable neighbors. I was hopeful that we would outdo ourselves for the second year in a row, but one can never be sure. These things are not guaranteed. However, I'm thrilled to announce that we surpassed last year's Christmas Eve offering with a grand total of $86,390, and say the pennies with me, 58 cents. What? <laughs> it's unreal. When we say that every gift matters, that's what it looks like. That's what a generous church can do in one day. That's what people who care about their neighbors and their city can do to make a difference. And I am so, so proud to pastor a church that puts their treasure where their heart is. So high fives all around. Someone next to you, just high five. Everyone do it. Yep. Well done. Well done, church. <laughs> Today is Epiphany Sunday. Maybe that's a new word for you. Epiphany itself was yesterday. It is the 12th day of Christmas. And it's marked by the story of the Magi. We read of them in the Gospel of Matthew. Sometimes they're called the three kings or the wise men. The Bible never said there were three, just three types of gifts, nor that they were all men. But the name Magi indicates that they were probably more like mystics, astrologers, people seeing and seeking the world in a different way. They were curious in mind and in spirit, seeking truth and wisdom, something beyond what the facade of this world offers. They were looking past it, through it, to the stars, to sacred texts, to their intuition for something more real. And their spiritual journey led them to Jesus. We might say that their seeking and their encounter with the Christ child took the filters off of this world and they had new eyes to see. Scripture tells us they went home by another way. They would live in a new light, a different identity from now on. The Magi start us off in this new year, this new series, with that lesson, to search for and to see what is real, what is true, to open new eyes to see what God sees in us, to see with no filter. Filters are fun, right? They've been around forever in photography, long before we all lived with cameras in our pockets, but now they're so wild, you can turn your face into a cat or a dragon, you can glitter or glow, you can spit out rainbows. We can make ourselves look less tired, less old, thinner, happier, whatever it is we think we're not. 
Canva, many of you use this, a popular free online graphic design tool, describes its filter effects as ways to make every photo cute, warm, or breathtaking. <laughs> of course. Who doesn't want their life or their self-portrait to be cute, warm, or breathtaking? These are literal filters that we put on just in the physical realm, but think about the filters we apply to our whole lives and what we put out there for others to see and what we don't. We filter out our sadness and pain. We filter out our financial struggles and sometimes pretend they don't even exist. We filter out our feelings of mediocrity and try to convince everyone that our lives are incredible. We do all this filtering and curating of our lives to conform to some idea of what is real and fulfilling and acceptable. And yet, what we're left with is a self that we have fabricated for everybody else to see. And we may not even recognize ourselves anymore. Great spiritual teachers, and now even modern psychology, speak to this dual duality, this dual idea of our self. There is the false self, and there is the true self. And the false self is sort of where we get started. It's the filtered self that comes about early in life as we begin to navigate the world and figure out how to survive it. Our families of origin layer filters onto us, She's the smart one. She's the responsible one. He's the athletic one. They are the creative one. Our friends, our teachers, our partners, our employers, our culture, and our religion all add layers and labels, good, bad, and neutral, to this false self, what some might call our container. This is the self that is largely defined in distinctions, what it is that makes us different from other selves. Father Richard Rohr, a Jesuit priest, writes about the false self in his book, Immortal Diamond, The Search for Our True Self. And he writes, I'll read quite a bit of this, but this is what he writes about the false self. Please understand that your false self is not bad or inherently deceitful. Your false self is actually quite good and necessary as far as it goes. It just does not go far enough. And it often poses and thus substitutes for the real thing. That is its only problem. And that is why we call it false. The false self is bogus more than it is bad. It pretends to be more than it is. Various false selves are necessary to get us all started, but they show their limitations when they stay around too long. And then he talks about what Jesus might say about this in scripture. He says, Jesus would call your false self your wineskin, which he points out is only helpful insofar as it can contain some good and new wine. Jesus says that old wineskins cannot hold any new wine. In fact, they burst, and both the skins and the wine are lost. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. This is quite telling and a wise metaphor revealing Jesus' bias toward growth and change. In Luke 5:39, the old wine is good enough, says the man or woman set in their ways. In this new year, in this new season, our hope is to grow beyond our false and filtered selves and to grow toward the true self, the one God created and still sees within each one of us. The structure of this series is simple. Each week we'll take a verse or two from scripture that says something about us, 
that gives us an adjective that describes us. We'll embrace it, and my hope is that our selfies, figuratively, might begin to feel a little more real and true to us. We'll start to take true selfies, if you will. True selfies. So the word I want to start with today is redeemed. We find this word in various places throughout Scripture, but I'm going all the way back to the Old Testament for this one, from the prophet Isaiah. These are the words of God directed through the prophet Isaiah toward the people. And notably, these words come right after a decent admonishment of how badly um, they had screwed up and failed once again to follow the ways that God had laid out for them. But even in the wake of massive mistakes, these are the eyes through which God sees God's people. From Isaiah chapter 43. But now, says the Lord, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Redeemed isn't a word we use much anymore in everyday conversation. We probably see it more in like song lyrics here at church. It's sort of a more churchy word now. So what exactly does redeemed mean? Most often, I think I use it in the context of redeeming qualities, like of a person or an event or a movie or a meal. And typically in that context, we're trying to find something good in an otherwise bad experience. <laughs> like at lunch today, you might say, that joke the pastor told in her sermon was really its only redeeming quality. Its other common use has to do with stuff, stuff that was sold or collected for payment, lost to the owner perhaps because of a debt, but then it's bought back, like from a pawn shop, and it is redeemed, it is restored to its rightful place, but at a cost. Most of the time, then, redeemed is applied to things or experiences, but in the Bible, the word is applied to us. And when we look at what God is up to in redemption, we could say that consistently God is taking bad stuff and turning it into good stuff, restoring it to its rightful place. So what does this look like in real life? What does it mean for God to say we are redeemed? First of all, when we think about God taking something bad and turning it into something good, we can understand that God redeems our mistakes. In churchy terms, we would call these sins. We all have them. No one is perfect. We make choices and we take actions, all of us, that cause harm. Whether it's intentional or not, this is the nature of sin. And the weight of those mistakes can stay with us for a very long time, a lifetime even. But that is not the life God desires for us. It's not a life of redemption. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 puts it this way. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. A redeemed life is a cleansed life. The marks of guilt and shame that can feel so permanent to us are washed off. It's like some kind of divine magic eraser that can get even Sharpie doodles off of our walls. It seems impossible when we're living with the weight of shame, but shame is a filter. 
Jesus' forgiveness pierces right through that filter with love for who we really are. We are not our mistakes. At a previous church I served, I had a church member who many years before had committed a serious crime. He had served many years in prison. He'd been cut off from his family. He'd lost custody of his son. And over those years, his soul-searching had brought him along this journey of forgiveness and redemption. It didn't happen overnight. He wrestled for a long time with his identity, with these labels and marks that stayed with him, getting employment, stepping into dating life, even coming to church. He was welcomed, but even some people within the congregation struggled with the radical nature of God's grace and forgiveness. But over time... He lived into this forgiveness. He shed the shame piece by piece. He fell in love when he least expected it. He got married. He reconnected with his now-grown son. And with a lot of work, he saw himself once again as a person worthy of love simply because he was a child of God. He did the hard work of receiving forgiveness that he didn't think he deserved, He poured himself into work that he loved. He volunteered with the AV team at church. He served people in the community with limited mobility. He grew into one of the kindest, humblest, most generous men you'll meet. And his wife now once said to me, if you want to know what a redemption story looks like, he's it. His filters of guilt and shame had come off. He was living a life redeemed from his mistakes. And God brought so much good out of him from something bad. He regained possession of his true self, redeemed. God redeems our mistakes. And then there's the flip side. God redeems our pain. Yes, it's true that we cause harm and pain to other people, and those consequences can weigh us down, but it's also true that people cause us harm and pain. We are the recipients of other people's mistakes and sins, or we are hurt simply by the circumstances of life. And the pain we feel as a result affects us, all of us, to varying degrees. But it can stay with us. In some cases, it can define us for a very long time. Modern psychology would identify this as trauma. Probably heard that word quite a bit. And sometimes we carry it from a very young age. Maybe it's from an early loss or the violence of abuse or neglect. Or maybe it comes more recently in your story, an accident, an end to a relationship or marriage, a theft, a diagnosis. Trauma and pain can be, often are, overwhelming. They can affect everything we do and how we perceive ourselves. We feel like it, whatever it is, is the thing that makes us who we are. But this is the narrative of the false self. The pain may be a part of our story, but it's a filter. It isn't who we are. And God redeems it, takes what is bad, and turns it into something good. The Apostle Paul writes the better part of a chapter in 2 Corinthians about what God can do with our pain and the troubles that we endure in this life. Verse 4 of chapter, uh, chapter 1 says it most succinctly. God is the one who comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort other people who are in every kind of trouble. 
we offer the same comfort that we ourselves received from God. God doesn't cause our pain or inflict it upon us so that we will grow or learn from it, but God does comfort us in all of the muck and will take what is bad and turn it into something good. The points of pain in our lives are redeemed in connection to other people who are going through the same thing. You probably don't have to think too long about ways that this is true, whether it's in your own life or in the life of someone you know. I think of a woman in an online class that I teach who very openly shared with us her own story of redeemed pain in her life. For years and years, she buried the deep trauma that had happened to her as a child in an abusive home. The memories and the pain seemed to creep into every aspect of her life, but it certainly wasn't something she was brave enough to talk about outside the safety of therapy until God started bringing other women into her life who carried similar pain. It was almost as if it was a sign to her that this work of redeeming was about to begin. And in the years that followed, she has used this part of her story not only to connect with and to comfort other victims of abuse, but to launch an entire ministry for them out of her church in Florida. Out of something really terrible and awful, out of deep pain, God brought about something good. God redeems our pain. And finally, God redeems our weakness. Or maybe more accurately, God redeems our perceived weakness. The Apostle Paul, again, famously writes about weakness and strength later in his same letter to the Corinthians. These verses might sound familiar to some of you. Maybe you have them on a poster or a desk paperweight or a keychain somewhere in your life. The Lord said to me, my grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore, I'm all right with weakness, insults, disasters, harassments, and stressful situations for the sake of Christ, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That last part's the keychain part. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul is writing about some weakness in his own life. In the letters we have in the Bible, he never says exactly what it is. It's just some affliction that he lives with, something he's somewhat embarrassed about, the thorn in his flesh, he calls it. But he's using it as an example to say that there's this thing he perceives as his weakness, and yet the Spirit of Christ continues to prod and remind him that it's because of that very thing he is made strong. Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. God redeems what we perceive as our weakness. God makes something good out of what we perceive as bad. A friend of mine has battled anxiety and depression for much of her adult life. And for most of those years, she didn't talk about it, not with her family, not with her peers, not even with her doctor. She perceived it as weakness in herself, and so she had no interest in admitting that maybe it was a reality much bigger than what she could manage. She did manage it through other means, working a lot, drinking a lot, eating a lot, spending lots of money, things that ultimately exacerbated the cycle. But at long last, and this was shortly after I was getting to know her, she had begun cautiously talking about it with people. She brought it up with her doctor. 
She resisted medication at first, again fighting her own perception of weakness, but finally reconciled herself to a healthier rhythm of living with her mental health diagnosis, not ignoring them or trying to overcome them on her own. It was as if the floodgates opened after that. She realized that with help and support and her newfound prayer life, she felt stronger than she ever knew she could be. She started talking to everyone who even mentioned the word anxiety or depression. She would pray with people. She would share her story. She would offer her support to people and offer to walk with them as they searched for what they needed to help them. She went from a life, and I watched it happen, running on fumes that was almost entirely a facade to a life running on honesty and vulnerability. And while the challenges of her diagnoses remain, she knows more deeply than most what it means for Christ to redeem our perceived weaknesses and turn them into strength. She is one of the strongest humans I know because she knows her strength doesn't come from herself alone. To pull back some of the filters that are layered onto our true selves, we have to remember the ways that God sees us. And God sees us as redeemed. God sees us as forgiven from our mistakes. God sees us as healed from our pain. God sees us as strong when we think we are weak. And the best part of it all is that this isn't a future identity. This isn't contingent. It's not conditional. It doesn't hinge on anything that we can do for ourselves to earn it or win it or make it. This is who we already are. This is us with no filter. It's who we ought to see in the mirror. It's our true selfie. Last week, many of you who were here for worship set the tone for the new year by a ritual act of remembering your baptism. Baptism is the identity marker of a follower of Jesus, the world over. It's the water that reminds us of who we are in him. And do you know what we say in a service of baptism? Whether it's your own or whether it's a three-month-old baby squirming around as I dump water on their head. We say no and then we say yes. We say no to the powers of evil and sin that threaten to tear us apart from God and from one another, all these filters that make us forget who we are. And then we say yes to the power of Christ to overcome those powers and to live as forgiven, healed, and strong. No filter, people. And as the water runs down our forehead, over our brows, and drips off the ends of our noses, whether at our one baptism or every time we remember it, we claim once again that this is who we are. Our true self. The self God already sees. Dripping wet with grace. Beloved. Redeemed. Live then embracing that this is who you are. Will you pray with me? God of grace, God who names us, God who redeems us, in this new year, help us to peel back the layers, the labels, the filters that hide us from others, that hide us from ourselves. 
Assure us that through your lens, our mistakes do not define us. Your forgiveness does. Our pain is not our identity. Your healing is. Our weakness does not determine who we are. Your strength does. May we learn day by day, year after year, to live in this image. In the name of Christ, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen.